Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives, and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. A reminder, as you are making your travel plans, remember to... Check johnnydollarair.com. johnnydollarair.com is our Priceline affiliate link. So anything you book through there, part of the purchase price goes to support the great detectives of old time radio at no additional cost to you. So remember when making your travel plans, check johnnydollarair.com first. Well, now it is time for the conclusion of the Henderson matter. The original air dates, November the 30th to December the 2nd of 1955 for the Henderson Matter, Episodes 3 through 5. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Eve Holden, son. Hi, Sheriff. You put in a call for me, did you? Yes, I'm ready to go to work. Now that the inquest's been held and George Henderson's death is officially an accident, I might be able to move around your little town a little easier. What can I do for you? Help me to move around. Uh, the case is closed, as far as I'm concerned. Eve, what's the matter with you? That inquest was a farce. For all I know, Henderson could have been pushed out of that hotel window. The attitude of different people in this town makes that whole oh, thing... Hold on now, son, hold on. I meant to say it's closed as far as my office is concerned. Personally, I think it needs investigating. We can help each other, maybe, you and me. Can I come over? Oh, I better come there. You know how folks are around here. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar, location Culver, Montana, to Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Henderson matter. The question, accident, suicide, or murder? Expense account item four, $3.48, one day later to Tim Connors' office in Hartford explaining the situation in Culver. I'll, uh, I'll read it back to you, Mr. Dollar. Mr. Tim Connors, Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. Coroner's inquest into death of George Henderson, policy number EMP-19667, found death to be accidental. In my opinion, the inquest was not thorough. Have decided to stay on in Culver and conduct my own investigation. If any change, please advise via Western Union, Butte Hotel, Culver. Am forwarding copy of coroner's verdict this date. Best regards, Dollar. Correct? Okay. Oh, uh, Mr. Dollar. Hmm? Good luck. <laughs> yeah, sure. Expense account item 5, 68 cents, postage. I mailed a copy of the coroner's verdict to Hartford Airmail Special. After that, I went back to my hotel to wait for the sheriff, Eve Holton. Come on in, Eve. I... Oh. 
Hello. Hello. Uh, Mr. Dollar, my name's Porter. I'm the manager of this hotel. Oh, well, come in, Mr. Porter. I, I can't right now. I've got some other things to attend to. Well, anything I can do for you, Mr. Porter? I I'm going to have to ask you for your room, Mr. Dollar. Oh, when? Uh, t- today. Any particular reason? We're all filled up. Uh, the, the room's been reserved for six weeks. By whom? What? Who reserved it? Why, uh, a man from Bozeman. It's a sort of convention. Sort of convention. What kind of convention is that, Mr. Porter? Look, Mr. Dollar, you'll have to leave this room today. The man's coming in tonight. Aha. Uh-huh. And there's no other hotel in town. That's the way it is, Mr. Dollar. No other place to stay? No. So I have to pack my bags and get out of town, is that it? I must have the room, Mr. Dollar. Who asked you to say you wanted the room, Mr. Porter? Who asked you to come here and kick me out? Why, no one, I... Well, you go back to no one, Mr. Porter, and you tell no one that I'm staying right here in this room here in Culver until I finish what I have to do here. You tell that to no one, will you? Mr. Dollar, I'd I'd hate to call the police. Go ahead, Mr. Porter. Be sure and tell them about the sort of convention you're having and how all the rooms are sold out. Tell them about Mr. No One and tell them I called your bluff. Anything else, Mr. Porter? I was at the stage where I was beginning to take notes for myself. Note one, the mayor didn't want to have an inquest into the death of George Henderson. Note two, when they did have an inquest, they didn't want to really find out anything. Note three, Mr. Hotel Manager wanted me to keep on not finding out anything by getting me out of town. I explained all of this to Eve Holton when he showed up a half an hour later. Kind of tight, isn't it? I don't know what that means, Sheriff, but it's pretty stupid. (laughs) Yeah, it's stupid, son, but it could be effective. Now, I'll tell you what. If Porter calls the police, I'm the police, so don't worry about that. I'll hem him and haw him. All right, thanks. Now then, uh, tell me how much your insurance company's stuck for. $50,000 if Henderson's death goes by as an accident. The good book says that's what it was. I know, I know. There's a chance, too, we had a heart failure and fell out of that window. No, sure. Always a chance. We might have to dig him up and find out, Sheriff. Oop, well, hold on. Autopsies and digging people up is one thing you'd have a hard time doing around here. I might insist on it. I don't know. Well, let that go for now. Say, tell me about Mrs. Henderson. Where's she from? Here. Right here in Culver. Now, she didn't get that mink coat and those diamonds she was wearing at the inquest in Culver. More important, she didn't get that continental look here either. So what's the story? Well, her name was Pauline Underwood before she married George, born and raised right here in Culver. Of course, she went to school in the East, and she's been in Europe a couple of times, but most of her life's been right here. She is a mighty pretty widow. And a mighty rich one, too. Henderson had it. I know. This divorce she talked about at the inquest yesterday. Well, everybody in town knew they weren't getting along, never did get along. How could they? Pauline's 26 and George is 59. He could have been her father. As a matter of fact, he almost was. Well, tell me about that. You got a drink? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, George raised Pauline from the time she was 14. He paid for all her schooling and growing up. She didn't have any folks after her old man died. George was pretty good to her. He sure was. <laughs> was he a friend of her parents? Well, Tom Underwood worked out at the ranch for George. When he died, there was Pauline standing there. Oh, yeah. Oh, thanks. And she eventually married him and his money, huh? Well, I, I wouldn't put it that way exactly. I think she liked him. 
Now, I've gone over what you're thinking, son. Those two were talking about divorce for some time. The papers had been drawn up for a settlement. She'd have got a lot of alimony and so on. Oh, Pauline had no call to push him out that window or have him pushed out. At least not for money. All right. Suppose he didn't want a divorce. Suppose he loved her and she came to the hotel room that morning and he pleaded with her to try all over again. Suppose she said no. Suppose she said no in a great big cold way. And George Henderson sat there and thought about it after she left. And he got sick all over and he walked over to that window and... Suicide? What do you think? You know him. Yeah, he wasn't a suicide type. Oh, nobody's the suicide type until they come to the end of the line, Eve. Then it's too late to interview them and ask them how they got there. Everybody seems to think it was an accident, so I'm just throwing words around. You have a right to do that if you aren't satisfied, son. Hey, getting back to this hotel again. Who might want me to get out of town and not ask any questions? Anybody. Well, who? No idea. But it's somebody who has some feelings in this. Hey, who owns this hotel, Eve? Noah Baxter. Who's Noah Baxter? Rancher. Got a place about 15 miles from here. Pretty big man. Uh Uh-huh. Friend of Henderson's? Yeah. Hmm. And let me put that question a little different. Baxter, a friend of Mrs. Henderson's? I don't know. Can you find out? I can try. Well, find out about him and any other friends, Eve. Friends that might be younger, that might have gone to Europe or school in the East. Yeah. Sure. What are you thinking now, son? Well, now, if I were Mrs. Henderson and my husband fell out of a window in this hotel and killed himself, I'd hire a lawyer and I'd sue the hotel for damages. If the insurance company didn't pay off my claim, I'd hire a lawyer and insist that they pay that claim. I'd do those things right away, Sheriff, especially if I thought it was all legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Two hours later, I received a wire from Tim Connors. He requested me to look up a man named Thurber, an insurance broker living in Great Falls. Expense account item six, $4.92, tank of gas. I borrowed Sheriff Holton's car and drove the 80-odd miles to Great Falls that afternoon. Mr. Thurber bought lunch. My Lord, I hope there isn't anything to all this, Mr. Dollar. I just hope there isn't. George Henderson. Yeah, well, there isn't anything to anything yet, Mr. Thurber. I'm... Still trying to find out the facts. Oh, I knew you were over in Culver. I tried to call you there a couple of times. You were out both times. Finally, I put in a call to the home office in Hartford. I talked to this man, Connors, with the adjustment agency. Yeah. You see, Mr. Dollar, it's like this. I've been over in Jackson Hole for five days now hunting duck. We were way in, and I didn't hear about Henderson's death until I got back yesterday. Uh-huh. Now, oh, look, Mr. Dollar, I don't know what reflection this will have on your attitude toward this case. But two days before I left, Mr. Henderson telephoned me here in Great Falls... He said he wanted to change the beneficiary on his policy. Oh, in other words, he was going to cut his wife out, huh? Yes, I suppose so. I know they weren't getting along. There'd been talk of divorce. Yes, I guess so. Uh-huh. Did he name a new beneficiary? Yes, a schoolteacher in Culver named Matilda Knickerbocker. Everybody calls her Maddie. What was his connection with her? None that I know of. I think it was just a name for him to throw in until he could decide on another beneficiary why he didn't have Wait a minute. Any... Maddie Knickerbocker... Just a school teacher. Everybody knows her. He was awful mad when he talked to me that day. I could tell it in his voice. Now, here's what might interest you just a little more. The day I left on my hunting trip, Mr. Henderson phoned me again. He said to never mind. Mrs. Henderson was still his beneficiary. Had you changed the policies yet? No. Are you sure it was Henderson who telephoned you? Well, yes, of... I, I think it was him. Do you remember when you got the call? Somewhere around noon, a little later, I guess. He died between 12.30 and 1. And it 
Must have been just before he fell out the window. He phoned you long distance from cover, huh? Yes, sir. Well, he was supposed to have been in the hotel all morning, so he had to phone from his room. Well, you can check that, can't you? <laughs> You'd be surprised how hard it is to check simple things like that around the Butte Hotel. Did you know Henderson very well, Mr. Thurber? Well, he was a customer. I wrote a lot of insurance for him. Know his wife? Oh, yes. Well, tell me about them. Well, go ahead, Mr. Thurber. Uh, now, look, accidents rarely have reason behind them. Suicides and murders always do. You don't think it was an accident? Well, let's say I've heard enough and seen enough to make it a draw so far. Go ahead, tell me about them. And I wish I was married to Mrs. Henderson. I mean, I wish she could see me. I think most any man who's ever met her hoped the same thing. Young men, old men, any kind. But she picked George. George was as tough and leathery as these mountains around us, exactly her opposite. But Pauline married him. He raised her. He was close to her all her adult life. Yes. But, Mr. Dollar, you know and I know she didn't have to marry him. She could have married anybody here in Culver or anybody in London or Paris. You see what I mean? And not quite. Well, I always had the idea that after she married him, she kept letting him know she could have had anybody else she wanted. Go ahead, Thurber. I think she married him for his money. I think she would have killed him for his money. Johnny Dollar. This is Mrs. Henderson. You asked me to call, Mr. Dollar? Yes, Mrs. Henderson. I'm with Paramount Insurance Adjusters. Oh, yes. You probably know we asked for the inquest into your husband's death. Yes, I know. We're trying to clear up the entire matter as quickly as we can, Mrs. Henderson. I'd like to talk to you. Oh? Hate to trouble you at a time like this. Well, that's all right, Mr. Dollar. When do you want to talk? May I come out to the house this afternoon? There's a nice restaurant called Big Horn Lodge on the highway. How about meeting you there at, say, uh, 4 o'clock? Good. I'll be there. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Henderson matter. Expense account continued. Item 7, 5 bucks. One pair of galoshes, believe it or not. It snowed in Culver, Montana during the night, all night. By morning, 14 inches of fine new snow covered everything in sight. After my phone call to Mrs. Henderson, I spent the morning trying to rent an automobile. There was none to be had, so that afternoon I dropped over to see Eve Holton, my sheriff friend. Son, you're going to catch your death unless you start wearing this car. Yeah, I'll remember that, Eve. But maybe I won't need one. Oh? Yeah, I think I'll be leaving Culver pretty soon. Well, I hope you don't mean that, son. I'm afraid I do. I'll have to tie this case up one way or another pretty quick. Why? My company wants me to get back home. I got a letter this morning. Oh, well, how can I help you? Well, for one thing, you can lend me your car again. I, uh, I have a date with a lady out at the Bighorn Lodge. <laughs> pretty fancy. You can have the old thing anytime you want it. You know that, son. Who's the lady? George Henderson's widow. Yeah. Oh. Now, I know what you're going to say. Why go after her? Why bother her until I have something to go on? Well, I got to do something, Eve. 
I'm no nearer now to knowing whether Henderson was pushed out that hotel window, fell, or jumped. I think I have enough of an idea of Henderson and his wife to pick up some valuable information from her. Any objections? Nope. Johnny, a couple of days ago, you asked me to look up people who might have been especially friendly to Mrs. Henderson. You still want to know about them? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm working on it. Anyone so far? Nobody I'd put in that category. What time you have to be at the Bighorn? Four. It'll take you a while. Wouldn't hurt to start right now. He's, uh, she's parked out back. Okay, thanks, Eve. Good luck. And don't let her wrangle you, son. She could do it if she wanted to. Goodbye, Eve. Ten minutes later, I was on the road to Bighorn Lodge, which also happened to be the same road I'd traveled two days before to attend George Henderson's funeral. As I drove past the graveyard, white and stark against the blue winter sky, I noticed a car parked along the side of the road, a little Chevy Coupe, about 1952. There was the figure of a woman, all alone, standing by George Henderson's fresh grave. Her head was bowed. She didn't notice me as I walked up. A gray-haired woman, about 45, slight, delicate, gentle. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to start it. Oh, that's all right. Must be getting late. Dear, it is. Uh, do I know you? Why, I don't know. I'm Maddie Knickerbocker. The name had startled me. The day before, an insurance broker in Great Falls had mentioned her, told me that George Henderson had named her his beneficiary, then changed his mind a few minutes before he died. Your name's not Campbell, is it? No. Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. You remind me of a boy I had in one of my classes once. Tory Campbell. Oh, you're a teacher, Miss Knickerbocker? (laughs) Yes, yes. Everybody knows me, I think. Or at least I flatter myself that way. (laughs) Well, I should be going. I, uh... I knew Mr. Henderson, too. Oh? He was a wonderful man, George. He was very dear to me. I'll find it difficult getting used to the fact that he'll never be around anymore. George had a wonderful laugh, didn't he? Yes, yes, he did, Mrs. Knickerbocker. I never really thought that he ever grew up. Of course, you knew him in a business way, and I'm sure he was very, very grown up in business. But it doesn't hurt to think of him this way now, does it? I don't think so, Miss Knickerbocker. I didn't come to his funeral. I didn't think I could bear it. I thought I'd just drive out this afternoon and say goodbye by myself. Well, I apologize for interrupting you. Not at all. Please. (laughs) Funny little things. Hmm? The birds in the snow. Such tiny, wonderful little things. A little bit of God in each of them, Mr. Dollar, wouldn't you say? Yes, ma'am. I don't know why. I think George would like to know they're here, near him. Miss Knickerbocker, I have to tell you... No, you don't, Mr. Dollar. I know who you really are. Everyone in town knows. You seem like a nice young man. Was it curiosity that made you stop your car? Yeah, I suppose so. I apologize. Oh, you needn't. I'm just an old friend of George's. 
saying goodbye to him. Good afternoon, Mr. Dollar. Goodbye. Talking to Maddie Knickerbocker, I felt that for the first time, somebody, namely Maddie, had talked frankly and truthfully about George Henderson. I was still thinking of the frail, drab little woman with the nice blue eyes when I met Pauline Henderson at the Bighorn Lodge. What are these matters you want to clear up, Mr. Dollar? Oh, just some doubts in my mind about your husband's death. What do you drink? Pernod. Pernod. I learned to like it in France. All right. Uh, one perno, bourbon, a little water on the side. Yes, sir. You sound like George when you order. Hey, I like your Bighorn Lodge. And I have to say, when it's elegant in the West, it's elegant. I'd like a light, please. Oh, sorry. Sure. Thank you. Mrs. Henderson, do you mind if I don't stall any longer with the drinks, the smokes, and the compliments? I'm surprised you've stalled this long. I've heard you're a very blunt and impulsive man. I spoke to an insurance agent named Thurber yesterday in Great Falls. Your husband's agent. Mr. Thurber told me that your husband wanted to name a new beneficiary last week. Really? Yeah. He named Matilda Knickerbocker. Matty Knickerbocker. I'm not surprised, I suppose. Matty's a lovely woman. I know George was very fond of Mr. her. Mr. Thurber also told me that Mr. Henderson changed his mind about that the day he died. In fact, he phoned Mr. Thurber in Great Falls and told him to leave the policy as it was. He did that a few minutes after you left his hotel room, a few minutes before he died. Can you explain any of that, Mrs. Henderson? Why don't you ask Mary Knickerbocker? Because I don't think she'd know. I ran into her this afternoon and I talked to her. Or not about this, just about other things. I'll look her up again if I have to. But it's you I want information from now. Then why don't you ask what you mean, Mr. Dollar? All right. Did something happen in that hotel room that made him change his mind about you? That's better. I do wish that ridiculous little man would bring our drinks. He will. Don't misunderstand what happened in the hotel room. George and I were going to be divorced. He moved out of the house a month ago. We went to his attorneys and drew up a tentative property settlement. You mean... Dunlap, Edder, Reardon, and Blake, Great Falls. They have a copy of that settlement. George was quite generous to me. So I didn't kill him for his money, if that's what you're thinking. Here we are, sir. Paranol bourbon. Thank you. I didn't see George for mm, three weeks or so after we made the settlement. Then we happened to meet one day in Culver, and... Well, we had a rather bitter argument. It was one of those ridiculous things. We quarreled and parted very angrily. The whole thing was childish. My first impulse was to go right back to the lawyers and demand every unreasonable thing I could on the divorce settlement. I guess George's first impulse was to cancel me out as his beneficiary. Did you go to a lawyer, Mrs. Henderson? No. No, I cooled off. I cooled off considerably, Mr. Dollar. After all, George had been everything to me most of my life. I was truly sorry we never got along as man and wife. I'm glad that we made it up before he died. That morning. He apologized when I came by the hotel. I apologized. After I left, he fell out the window. Then I can assume that this business with the policies had to do with the argument. Assume what you like, Mr. Dollar. I can understand why you're annoyed by me and my questions. It's just that it's kind of hard for us to believe that a man involved in divorcing his wife would still name her as his beneficiary. I say that because of past experience. Oh, it's happened. But it's unusual. I could have told you that we were reconciled that day in the hotel, that we were going to drop the whole divorce matter, and that George was coming back to the house to live. Yes, you could have told me that, Mrs. Henderson. 
Mr. Connors in our home office in Hartford called you a few days ago. You hung up on him. Why? Well, I was very upset. I've never been a widow before. Uh Uh-huh. I believe you, Mrs. Henderson, sitting here like this. You're a lovely person, and I know it, and you know it. And this is a pretty nice place to conduct business. Why didn't you ask me to your home? I preferred to talk to you here. That's what I thought. I saved all the, did your husband have any enemies, and did he seem depressed questions for another time. But before I went to bed that night, I read and reread Mrs. Henderson's testimony given at the coroner's inquest. The next morning, I interviewed all of the people at the Butte Hotel who'd been on duty the day Henderson fell out the window. After that, I dropped in to see Eve Holton. Here, here it is, Johnny, right here. Personal effects of the deceased included four suits of men's clothing, 14 shirts, five pairs of holders. Was there a bottle in that room, Sheriff? Liquor? Yeah. No, no bottle. Nothing like it, son. All right. He didn't call down and have a bellboy bring him a bottle or send him any drinks. The chambermaid swears there was no liquor in his room all the time he lived at the hotel. You say he was a light drinker. Now, what light drinker takes a nip before he has his breakfast? Who said he had a drink that morning? Mrs. Henderson. What? On the witness stand, under oath at the inquest. She testified that her husband had a drink before she came up to the room and while she was there. Now, mind you, she didn't say he was drunk, but she did say he had been drinking. You read over that transcript. So? So I think she threw that in, made sure it got in, because it's sometimes hard to believe that a cold, sober man will walk out of a hotel window and kill himself accidentally. A drunk or a drinker might do it. You and I and everybody at that inquest somehow got the impression that Henderson was slightly tipsy that morning. And Mrs. Henderson saw to that. Now then, if Henderson had a drink, I want to know where he got it. Tell me, Eve, no bottle in the room, no bottle brought up to the room. Where did he get that drink? That's a pretty good question, son. Johnny Deller. I have a call for you from Hartford. Go ahead, please. Johnny? Right here. Connors at Paramount Adjusters. Say, what was this wire, Johnny? You serious about denying liability to Mrs. Henderson? I sure am. I think it'll bring the whole thing out in the open. This is pretty serious. Have you got any concrete evidence that Henderson's death wasn't accidental? Jim, I have a copy of the coroner's inquest. Concrete evidence that Mrs. Henderson lied under oath. She said her husband was drinking the morning he died. Everybody here believed he was a little crocked when he fell out that hotel window. I've got proof that he didn't have a drink that morning. What proof? No bottle in his room. No bottle brought there. Nothing. What do you say? Don't make a move, kiddo. I'll get the first plane. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Henderson matter. Sheriff Holton agreed that there was enough of a doubt about the circumstances prior to George Henderson's accidental death to warrant an official re-examination of all the facts. He promised me the police would start an immediate investigation. That was all I needed. I knew Mrs. Henderson would be re-questioned and that the pressure would start to build up. Fourteen hours later, when Tim Connors arrived in Culver, I had some pressure of my own. Well, Johnny, what? 
Well, the best thing we can do now is move in. Deny liability on the grounds that the accident is not proved. I suppose Mrs. Henderson sues us. All right, let her. Then the burden of proving that her husband's death was accidental would be on her. Look, Tim, contrary to her testimony under oath, Henderson didn't have a drink that morning he died. All right, she made a mistake. He had a heart attack, got dizzy, and tumbled out of the window. He wasn't drunk. Oh, don't talk nonsense, Tim. Listen to me. Mrs. Henderson was ready for the coroner's jury a couple of days ago, and she was ready for my questions when I saw her yesterday. The only one she wasn't ready for was you a few days ago when you phoned a long distance. You said she hung up on you. Well, she half apologized to me for that, but it was because she couldn't think of anything to say. Well, maybe you're right. But suppose he did die accidentally, and suppose it is a just insurance claim. I tell you it isn't. Now, the fact that she made a mistake testifying about him having a drink and... Hey, Johnny, do you have anything else? Three things. Instinct, experience, and statistics. Pauline Henderson's a young woman. She married a wealthy older man. With him out of the way, she has all his money and all her youth. All right, I'm going to phone the company as soon as I can find a phone. Tell them I'm working for evidence, and the best way to get it is to bring Mrs. Henderson out in the open. File a complaint against her. What charge? Suspected murder. Oh, no, Johnny, that'd get us in all kinds of trouble. Remember the drink, Tim. Henderson didn't have the drink. Now we'll have to have more than that. I'm sorry, Johnny. All right, I'll get you more. An hour later, I was with Sheriff Holden comparing notes. He reported that after questioning Mrs. Henderson, she admitted she might have been mistaken about Henderson drinking the morning of his death. She wasn't sure. But Eve Holton said what we both were thinking. He went in front of the coroner's jury and gave a misleading impression, son. Made us think that George was drunk and stumbled out the window. Huh? We better find out who helped her pull this off. Sheriff Holton had every man in his office working on the case by then. It was a long, tedious job of combing over everything in Pauline Henderson's background to find a possible accomplice. About five in the afternoon, I drove to the Henderson Ranch with Holton. Mrs. Henderson was out, but we interviewed one of the servants. That's right, sir. Once, twice a week. Uh-huh. You know where she drove to on these trips? I have no idea. Mrs. Henderson get up early in the morning, be gone all day. How do you know she went out of town? Well, she generally take a small suitcase with her, change of clothes. You don't take those when you're visiting a friend in town, do you? Tell us what car she'd use on these trips. A Cadillac. Always come back covered with mud and ice. Always have to be washed up. Mr. Henderson used to complain about that. About the car being dirty? About the trips, mostly. He and Mrs. Henderson had some pretty good arguments about him. He'd say Mrs. Henderson shouldn't visit that man. What man? Just that man. I never knew who it was they argued about. You've known Mrs. Henderson quite a long time, huh? Yes, sir. Know her when she was a little girl, when she first came here. Saw her grow up, go away to school, go away to Europe, come back a little more grown up and a little different every time. Were you surprised when Mr. Henderson married her? Well, no. Well, yes, guess I was. Because she was so much younger? Not that so much. I mean, well, Mr. Henderson, he had something about the plains and cattle and mountains about him. When he moved, it was as big as all them things. Mrs. Henderson was different. She didn't fit in here? Is that what you're trying to say? I think she fit. Not like him, though. Before they were married, they were sort of like good friends. I mean, they'd ride horses and go hunting and laugh and talk about different things. Mrs. Henderson, she traveled Europe, saw so many things and places in the world. She fit here, but then she didn't belong here. I feel awful about Mr. Henderson's being dead. 
there was anything wrong with the way he died, I'd like it to be fixed. Mrs. Henderson will probably fire me for talking like this, but I don't care. This house isn't the same no more. By the time we got back into town, Sheriff Holden's boys had discovered the names of three men who had been seen at various places around Culver in the company of Mrs. Henderson. Rod Tyler. Oh, who's he? Mining engineer. He's been away from here for over a year now. See, now here's another one, Sam Pollard. Sam died six months ago. Hey. What? Noah Baxter. Noah Baxter. That name's vaguely familiar. Yeah, he owns a hotel you're staying in. A couple of ranches, too. Well, he might have been the one who tried to have you thrown out. He also owns the mayor. Young man? About 30, 35. Let's go see him. Another drive, this time north of Culver to the Baxter Ranch. We found Noah Baxter busy with his help shoring horns on cattle. A lean, tall man with thin features. If you're trying to find out if I've been seeing Pauline on the sly while she'd been married to George, why didn't you come right out and ask? All right, have you? No, not on the sly. There's nothing between us. George knew any time she came over here to see me. He was a good friend of mine. I'm sorry he's dead. Pauline's a good friend of mine, too. I'm sorry you people are thinking what you are about us. Let's go up the house. It's getting cold. All right, Stan, that's enough for today. Noah, I got to ask you this. Where were you last Thursday? The day George died, Sheriff? Yeah. I was right here. Can you prove that? <laughs> sure. Ask anybody. <clears throat> you boys want a drink? No, thanks. No, no. Well, I do. Mac! Mac! I didn't get it myself. When was the last time you were in cover, Mr. Baxter? Three, four weeks ago. My cook and the others handle what supplies we need. Do you mind if we talk to some of your help around here? No. What do you want to talk to him about? About last Thursday, about what happened when Mrs. Henderson came here to visit? It wouldn't look good if she came here to visit me, would it? Well, that depends on the circumstances, no? Huh. She'd come and sit there and read and look at some of those paintings. We'd talk when I had time. Anything wrong with that? No. Mr. Baxter, I think I ought to tell you... I've asked my company to file a complaint against Mrs. Henderson. Suspicion of murder. Oh. I'd like to tell you something. She didn't kill him and she didn't have him killed. She loved him a lot more than George loved her, I think. Both of you know her. Her dad was a drunken cowhand. When he died, George took her over, gave her everything. So you see, you're wrong. She loved George for giving her what he gave her and mostly for being the kind of a man he was. I lied to you a couple of minutes ago. There was something between us. It was bound to happen sooner or later. She'd come here to cry on my shoulder and I... I let her. Cry? About George. He wanted to divorce her. Didn't you know that? I had the idea it was the other way around. <laughs> You're all wrong. George raised her, educated her, made her into a woman, and then he married her. And she wasn't what he wanted at all. <laughs> you know who George wanted to marry? Matty Knickerbocker, the schoolmarm. 
Go on. Oh, there was nothing between George and Maddie, but there would have been if he'd lived. What about you and Mrs. Henderson? Yeah. The thing that was between us was that I wanted her. She didn't want me, but I wanted her. I was glad when she told me about the divorce coming up. I really think she would have listened to me. But she wanted to be married to George. She really loved him. Sure you don't want one of these? No. Nope. And I really loved her. I went to see George last Thursday at his hotel. You know why? To tell him to go back to Pauline. Yeah. Because I knew what he meant to her. <laughs> you can talk to my people around here. They'd lie for me and say I was here last Thursday all day. They'd tell you that Pauline never came to see me. They'd lie right down the line for me. But, Mr. Dollar, I can't let you get out that complaint and take her in. One of my trucks was taking some beef to the hotel last Thursday. I rode in with the driver and went in the back way. I went right up to George's room to talk to him. Pauline had just left. I wanted to talk to him about the same things I've been telling you. I didn't want to hurt him. I loved him, the same as everybody loved him. When I got to his room, he wouldn't let me talk at all. He was mad that I interfered. He tried to swing on me. I shoved him once. He went out the window. That's all. I killed him. Expense account, item eight. $58.15, hotel and food while in Culver, Montana. Item nine, same as item two, transportation by train and plane back to Hartford. Item 10, $88, miscellaneous. Expense account total... $802.50. Remarks? We still had to pay double indemnity. Maddie Knickerbocker, Pauline Henderson, Noah Baxter, they'll pay another way. With the hurt that comes to nice people. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Remember, there'll be another exciting story beginning next Monday night. Next week, a real mystery complete with plenty of action, a beautiful blonde, and a killer lurking in the shadows. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in this week's cast were Lillian Bayef, Irene Tedrow, D.J. Thompson, Herb Ellis, Marvin Miller, Forrest Lewis, Bob Bruce, and Russ Thorson. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story... Of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roy Rowan speaking.
Welcome back. An intriguing episode, and it required a special bit of massaging by John Dawson, a.k.a. E. Jack Newman. The story is based on the Underwood Manor, which was a 1953 John Lund story. Newman had to expand on that story, but not as much as on others due to the ads in the first two episodes, and I think the result is a pretty solid piece. It's an episode that shows the perils of trying to cover up the truth as it eventually comes out, but with a lot of pain and aggravation for a lot of people. Even though Johnny was wrong about Mrs. Henderson, he definitely had reason to be suspicious. Although this does show the limit of instinct, experience, and statistics. The three things that Johnny relied upon in deciding that she had killed her husband. And of course, the same thing can be said for the degree to which other people can truly know other people. It's often said that in small towns, people know who you really are. But that's really only true to the extent that, one, you open yourself up to people knowing you and show them your true self, and two, the willingness of people to try to understand who you are. In many ways, although Mrs. Henderson was from Culver, people in the town formed an opinion of why she married him and who she was based on her travels and education and clothes. The biggest shock of the episode was that Mr. Henderson was the one who initiated the divorce. But it goes to show that people are individuals, and that you really need to be very, very close to have an accurate view. In this case, people in the town and even the insurance agent in Great Falls jumped to assumptions, i.e. the insurance agent saying that he thought that Mrs. Henderson never let her husband forget that she could have had anyone else, which, you know, obviously wasn't the case. The scene between Johnny and Maddie Knickerbocker was, I think, an effective one and was perhaps one of the only times we really got an insight into the character of Mr. Henderson until the final episodes. It does show how one man can really be viewed differently by different people. I was kind of curious about the last name Knickerbocker because I knew that it did historically refer to New York. And when I looked it up, it is an actual surname. And it's connected back to the New Netherlands uh, settlement though it became popular in wider culture with the publication of A History of New York by Washington Irving, in which he used the pseudonym Dietrich Knickerbocker. So perhaps the choice of the teacher's name was a nod to Washington Irving. The term Knickerbocker as a reference to New Yorkers is said to be obsolete, according to Wikipedia, which also tells us that the name of the New York basketball team is the New York Knickerbockers. 
which is, by the rest of us, shortened to New York Knicks. So I don't know how obsolete it is. There was actually a radio series called the Knickerbocker Playhouse in which Bob Bailey appeared. So at any rate, that caught my attention. Also, the amount of snow falling in eastern Montana is certainly accurate. It worked out for Johnny that snow had stopped or he would probably not have been able to meet Mrs. Anderson. Because during some of those snowstorms, you really can't see where you're going. But just in terms of getting an amount of snow, that's something where if you live in that part of the country, you really just get used to it and deal with it, drive on the snow, you know, get the roads plowed and make it so people can get out and get about their business. Because... If you don't do that, then nothing is going to happen all winter long. Listener comments and feedback now, and this is from Twitter and uh, listener Slodo, who comments on the Amy Bradshaw Matter episodes one and two, which, if you'll recall, was the first episode to feature the giant animals ad. And Slodo writes... Some lovely stuff here, but the advertising interruptions on some USA radio programs are very hard to bear for a spoiled, advert-free Brits. Wish there was an economic way of stripping out the adverts. Uh, we followed the Russian pioneers in radio by making it publicly owned. Well, thanks for the comments, uh, and I appreciate where you're coming from. Now, I will say there are ways to cut out advertisements. We generally don't do that. You know, there are some we cut, but most, uh, the vast majority we leave in because listeners from the United States enjoy the ads because it captures a sense of culture and of what was going on. And it reminds us of who we were as a people. And apparently as a people in 1955, all the kids got giant animals and a talking Santa that says, Merry Christmas to one and all. So let's be clear, there are a lot better ads than giant balloon animals. It's an interesting point in the way that the U.S., And the UK took different paths in the way that radio programs were aired. And I think they had pluses and minuses. I think that today, in terms of quality of output, that radio in the United Kingdom is generally better than what we have in the States. And that's particularly true in the case of audio drama. After the early 1950s, major American stars really stopped appearing in radio dramas, even as programs like Suspense uh, carried on. In the late 1940s, An episode of Suspense might have featured Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant. By the end of the decade, you were pretty much, with a few exceptions, down to radio programs starring people who would have just been considered character actors earlier in the decade. While in the UK, so many of their major stars, whether you're talking about... Benedict Cumberbatch, David Tennant, or the late John Hurt 
had a history of acting in and appearing on radio in well-written stories. But that said, the fact is that the golden age of American radio would not have occurred had Americans chosen to take the British approach of public ownership. And I don't mean it would be a situation like in the UK where most of the programs from that era are unavailable because of the BBC junk. What private radio did in the United States was it created a gold rush with a new medium that offered an opportunity to try new things to entertain listeners. You had stations trying different formats, different programs. People who had songs or stories or ideas or comedy routines were trying to break into radio. Now, there are some old-time radio programs that remain where you wonder, what were these people thinking? This was a horrible idea. But it was all part of the process. This sort of wonderful, mad, chaotic process where different people took an opportunity to make their voices heard, to make an impact, and to really reach out to an audience. And there was this really great breadth and scope of programs. And radio was a dominant force in culture for well over two decades. And they were important transformational decades during which the country would go through the Depression and then World War II and get started into the Atomic Age. And radio was there with superb Broadway and Hollywood talent regularly coming into people's homes with scripts, sketches, and music that had a vast appeal across the demographics of the United States. Now, I will say that as a general rule, the few British audio dramas I've heard from the era have not been nearly as impressive. Now, I do like Paul Temple, I will say that. But beyond that, I think that there's was kind of a more limited and staid range of programs that would come out in Britain in the 1940s and 50s. I mean, honestly, I think Australian audio drama, which also took a similar path to the U.S., but with an even greater regional difference with different programs originating from different parts of the country. Of course, what happened in the United States and later on in Australia was television took hold. And once that happened, television became the big medium and all of the money that had been going towards radio programs and radio sponsorships began going to TV sponsorships. And so did the talent in terms of writing, uh, in terms of acting. If you were a good writer and you could earn two or three times what you earned writing radio scripts, writing for television, if you were an actor, you know, you could do the same thing. And so you began to see everyone who could shifting over to television and as a result, the quality we got on radio began to diminish, which I think may have made it less appealing. It's kind of a chicken and egg sort of question. Did 
people stop listening because the quality went down? Or did the quality uh, go down because radio couldn't afford to have the budgets because people stopped listening? I think those kind of drove each other. And then radio became music, talk, and sports for the most part ever since. And you can find, you know, similar occurrences in Australia or in South Africa where Springbok radio lasted until the 1980s but couldn't survive long term against the competition from television. So it's a complicated issue with a lot of political and ideological elements that would be included. I guess to be as succinct as possible in what's been a long-winded answer already, I can appreciate that folks listening in the UK are not used to the amount of ads or some of the more obnoxious ads that we might have from the golden age of radio. But without those ads, our American Golden Age of Radio would not have happened. Finally, there's this one comment on uh, Johnny Dollar on the listener survey. Part one and part two, Johnny, a penny was all it was worth. Five parts or none. Well, I appreciate the point of view, which apparently is suggesting that if we're going to do the five-part Johnny Dollars, we post all five episodes at once. I can appreciate the point of view. It just doesn't work for our podcast as a week-to-week thing. Now, in the past, we have done omnibuses, which contain all five episodes as kind of special one-offs. And you can find these on our Johnny Dollar feed. We've done a total of six of these. And I expect that we will be doing more once we finish the Johnny Dollar serial run. And these will be as kind of one-off things like during our listener support appreciation campaigns, that sort of thing. I actually think there's merit to listening to them both ways. Listen to the whole thing together. It's like listening to a really good mystery movie of the week. On the other hand, when you kind of serialize and space them out, then it makes the story last longer and you get to enjoy it in more the original way it was intended when it was broadcast. And I enjoy doing it that way, other than the Broderick matter, which I listened to in five parts, I think within a single day. I went through these serials one day at a time over the course of 58 weeks uh, so many years ago, and it was a really good experience. And so there's merit in doing it both ways. For the format of the podcast, going through them week to week, it makes sense to split them up over two days. Of course, you always do have the option, and I know some people did this on the Superman podcast, they would actually wait until the entire Superman serial was over, which sometimes a Superman serial could go 22 episodes or something like that. And they would not They would download the episodes, and then once all 22 were done, then they would go back and listen to them. And you can certainly do that. Only downside is you won't have anything to listen to on Tuesday, but that's an option. All right, well, now it is time for me to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And I want to go ahead and thank Andrew. Andrew has been one of our Patreon supporters since March of 2020, currently supporting the show at the rookie level of $2 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Andrew. 
And that will actually do it for today. If you are enjoying this podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. And also be sure to rate and review us wherever you download your podcast from. We'll be back on Tuesday with another Yours Truly Johnny Dollar serial. Join us back here tomorrow for Tales of the Texas Rangers, where... Oh, there's Jerry's horse. Oh, there he is now, over there, coming up from behind that rock. Hey, Jerry. Hi, Sam. Oh, Lord. You find anything? No. Just another rumor, I guess. Looked all over, there's nothing here. Just come out on a wild goose chase. Jerry, there's Ranger Pearson. Jerry Matthews. Morning, Ranger. Ranger wants to talk to you, Jerry, about that fellow who claims he had his tire stolen. You mean the one who wrote that letter? Didn't even know where it happened? Well, we figure now he was talking about the roundup, Jerry. I told you last week I don't know anything about it, Sheriff. Clampett still claims he talked to a deputy, a young fellow, who took down a written report. What do you want to talk to me for? You looking to accuse me, Ranger, of concealing something? I'm not looking for anything but information, Jerry. I told you, Sheriff, I never took no such report. Look, Jerry, the ranger here has been assigned to clear this up. And while he's here, I want you to cooperate with him as much as you can. Well, get one of the other boys. I got more than I can do now. I can't send you out on anything else, Jerry. It'll get this cleaned up. Meaning I am under suspicion then. We'd just like to have you stick around till we get to the bottom of this, Jerry. In the meantime, just on the report of some crackpot, you're relieving me of my duties. Is that it? Now, get a hold of yourself, Jerry. Remember, you're still wearing the deputy's badge. No, I'm not. I'm turning it in. Now, Here. wait a minute, Jerry. No reason for you to fly off the handle like this. What more can I tell you except I don't know anything about a tire theft? Suppose next you can ask me if I stole the tire. Well, somebody stole it, Matthews. And we'd like to have all the help we can in locating who did. First off, we want to find out who took that report. Well, you can stop investigating me right now, Ranger, because I'm not a deputy anymore. I've quit. Now, take it easy, Jerry. I'm fed up with this. I'd rather be looking for a job than working for someone who doesn't trust me. I'm not taking any more orders from you, Sheriff. I'm through. Turning in that badge, Matthews, doesn't mean you're not still taking orders from both of us. What do you mean, Ranger? I mean the Sheriff and I are ordering you to stick around and be available for questioning. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to Box 13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.